You're listening to This is Yoga Therapy. I'm your host, Michelle Lawrence, and I've had the opportunity to interview many of those who are making a difference at the intersections of yoga and health. And I'm here to share with you their stories and conversations. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, I interviewed a woman who needs little introduction. Judith Hansen Lassiter, PhD and physical therapist, has taught yoga around the world since 1971. Judith offers numerous live events, digital courses, and has published 11 books, including her most recent, Yoga Myths and Teaching Yoga with Intention. In the podcast, we spoke about her life and her work and about how yoga itself is inherently therapeutic. It's such a pleasure and honor to have you here today, Judith. Well, thank you. The pleasure is all mine, Michelle. I like speaking with you and getting to know you and what your world is like is enjoyable for me. Wonderful. I know you have a specific way in like in which you like to begin these conversations together, so I'm going to offer you that opportunity right now. Thank you. So I like to start everything with nothing, and that means one minute of silence. You can call it meditation. You can call it centering. But just if you're sitting now as you're listening, and not if you're driving, sweet listener, but otherwise, sit in front of your sitting bones, not on top of them, not behind them, but in front of them. So the spine is spontaneously moving in and up. Drop the chin. I'm going to ring my bells very quietly once. We'll sit for one minute and then I'll ring the bells again and then we'll start. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. It just feels like we're starting with presence and attention and intention as well. So tell me why you do that. I'd love to start there before we get into much more. A couple of reasons. I started teaching yoga, as you mentioned before, in 1971. And most people had no idea what yoga was. And then as it began to move in the into the culture, I think it was often understood and people were concerned that it was a religion. On one of my trips to India, I found these bells. I actually drove the poor shopkeeper crazy because I stood there for an hour ringing all the different ones until I found the one that felt vibed with me. So 
And I just started having my class, inviting them to sit for one minute and ring the bells. And the ringing of the bells part gives off the sort of intuitive cellular awareness of this being something spiritual and different from everyday life. Because all religions use bells. They used to use the church bells because the village, no one had a clock and they rang the bells at various times. So we associate that on a very primordial level with the our interior lives, number one, without saying so. And number two, because I read some years ago an article in a Buddhist magazine called Tricycle, and it was about a math teacher who was a Buddhist practitioner, and he was teaching in a very troubled high school. So he already had three strikes against him, a Buddhist math teacher, troubled high school. <laughs> so he began to ask his students to sit for one minute. He didn't say meditate. He didn't say, he didn't teach Pali words or Sanskrit words or Buddhist Dharma. He just said, let's sit quietly for one minute. And of course, being teenagers, their number one job assignment was to rebel. So they kind of wiggled and said no. But pretty soon they started enjoying it. And if he would occasionally forget, his students started saying, Mr. Smith, we didn't sit. We didn't have our minute. And after a while, it began to spread through the entire school. And when it did, and this gives me chills, truancy went down, violence went down, and grades went up. Now, this is with one minute of silence. It's not hours of meditation. It has nothing to do with information or even behavior. It has everything to do with presence. And allowing those young people this gift of being silent. And of course, they start sharing with their families. I mean, so I just have for so long now, I don't even think about it. I like to start not just my yoga classes, but I've been on a number of boards in other situations, very large extended family. We have a family association and we meet at Thanksgiving. I mean, we're talking 65 people. Wow. And uh, luckily, it's in a part of the country where we can do most of it outside. Mm-hmm. There's so many people. And, and we have our meeting. And I, I even say, can we just, I've been running around all day talking to everybody. Can we just sit for one, quietly for one minute before we start? And you don't really get ble- blowback if you present it in a way like that. So I just, yeah. it's my habit. I like it. Yeah, I love it. And it really kind of demonstrates, especially through that story that you shared, how a little can go a long way. And I feel like we're going to circle back to that a bit at the end of our conversation today too. I know you do a lot with yoga therapy, or I believe that's true. Yeah. And I would like to talk about this one minute in relationship to yoga therapy, but either now or later. Go for it. It's kind of a layered answer. I think one of our stresses, I think we have two major causes of stress in our lives. One is we're absolutely exhausted. If everyone is really honest, we're exhausted from COVID, from isolation, from all rituals changing, from quarantine, from politics to the war, in the world situation, in the the weather, we're all exhausted by this. And the other way to, to look at it is we don't spend, as a culture, very much energy and introspection. 
And so what I believe is important, what comes from that, that stress of the way the world is and this lack of introspection is we tend to believe if we're, if we're quite honest, that we have very little power to change the world. And you and I are not going to go stop the war in the Ukraine or solve peace in the Middle East or drug addiction. And so we look at, we see all of these things on our plate every day coming into our, our consciousness and, and we feel depressed and anxious, I think, mm. because, but I think that, that that thought, I'm powerless, I can't change all of this, which leads to stress and exhaustion and more disconnection and ennui, but actually we have an incredible power. And that is the power of our absolute presence with ourselves first. You know how they, they say on the airplane, put on your oxygen mask first. Yep. We have to practice in order to allow and to recognize and to remember deep presence with our true self. And that's what asana, pranayama, and meditation are all pointing to the potential for us to be present. Because when we are truly present, it changes everything. It changes how we speak, how we treat people, how we treat ourselves, how we treat our families. And when we're yoga teachers, especially we have the potential to practice our own presence and the phenomenal honor and gift, the humbling gift to share that with other people. And, and what's happening is that everyone can only act out of their level of consciousness. Look at your twenties <laughs> <laughs> and I'll look at mine. <laughs> and so when we can remember and recognize our own true presence and create an environment called a yoga class in which other people have the spaciousness and the openness to find theirs. It's a shift in consciousness is the answer to everything. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I'm so glad that you shared that right off the bat because it says a lot about where you're coming from and what you're pointing to. So let's maybe rewind a tiny bit. I'm so curious, like what got you into yoga since you've been teaching since 1971, practicing before that? What was it that got you into it initially? And then how did that lead you to teaching? And then where has your teaching evolved over the years? I know we could spend the whole conversation talking about that. So maybe in somewhat of a nutshell, but I'm curious and I bet you our listeners are too. Well, thank you. I hope we don't because I'm sort of bored with me and I, <laughs> but I'm happy to share the story. In fact, if we were on video, you would see hanging up behind me a small rug, I think sort of a cost plus kind of oriental rug, small that was the rug I sat on when I taught. There were no yoga mats. I taught on my first yoga class sitting on that. Wow. And I see it every day and I give it a namaste, at least inwardly. Mm. All right. So I was a graduate school and I was studying political science, the acquisition of political attitudes. I was always interested in the sort of psychological view of everything. And I'd been a teaching assistant the first year. Now the second year I was going to be writing my master's thesis and 
I was very disillusioned with teaching because the students, it was right in the middle of the Vietnam War, and all they wanted to know was how they could get a B in the class. And I'm, I went to the University of Texas in Austin, and I was walking down the street, which is that street every university has where the coffee shops and bookstores and little bodegas and boutiques are. And there was, at the end of that street, a YMYWCA. It was a student YMYWCA. And I am not exaggerating when I say I was walking by, and it was like someone had an attachment to the middle of my body. And they just kind of, this force just like made me turn right and walk in. And I say it was the most important turn, right-hand turn of my life. Because I walked right up to the desk. There were three or four people sitting behind the desk. And I said, you know, I'm a graduate student at UT and I'm looking for a part-time job starting in September. And they just all turned at me like I had said, I'm here to rob you. And they said, how did you know? And I said, know what? Their reply was that we're looking for a part-time program associate. It was literally a force that I'd never been in there before. And it just pulled me in there. That was a blessing, one blessing. Another blessing was I'd been a dancer and now I was getting like arthritic symptoms at an early age. And they had a yoga program and I wanted to dance again. So I thought I'm going to take, oh, I get to take it free. So I took my first class. It was transformational to say the least. And I will tell you, ironically, you know, I'm known for restorative yoga. But when we lay down in Shavasana, I was thinking, why are we lying here? And I kept looking around like, what's happening? <laughs> Why aren't we doing something? <laughs> Which could kind of explain my, that I had insomnia at the time and had a hard time going to sleep. So that's why when I teach yoga class, especially beginners, I always say, okay, basically this is a social situation. We're just going to lie here and relax and nothing's happening. And I'm watching the time and I'm going to ring my, you know, so they have, so they don't go through what I went through. But I got up the next day, Michelle, And I did what I remembered. And that was it. It was literally black and line. It was a bright line in the sand where I wasn't practicing and where I was all in. And I got every book and I read every book. I loved it. I I liked the Sanskrit. I liked the philosophy. I liked the poses. I liked the breathing. I just was home. And 10 months later, my teachers moved away and asked me to take over a program of 200 students. So I went from Sunday night being just a yoga student to Monday morning at 10 o'clock being a teacher with 200 students. The universe said, you're going in there, you're learning yoga, and you're going to teach it. And that's what I did. But I, I do want to share one more story that I think rounds out this big story, if you will. Yeah. So I was so excited. And I remember I had this little Oriental rug rolled under my arm and I went in and I put it down and there were like 25 people lying on this hardwood floor, because we always started lying down, which is lovely. And I put, I sat on my rug and I panicked. I thought, what have I done? I have a full hour. What am I going to say? <laughs> what am I going to do? I, I was so excited by the idea of it that I never thought about the actuality of it. So I sat there and they're all, luckily they're all lying down with their eyes closed waiting to start. So I, what do I do? What do I do? Oh, When I feel like this, I remember, take a deep breath. (laughs) So I took several deep breaths and then I got, and this also gives me chills as many times as I've told this story. Off behind me, behind my right shoulder, I had the visceral kinesthetic interoception experience of my teacher standing there. Wow. And behind her, her teacher 
Mm. And I knew who, who he was. He was Indian. Mm-hmm. And then back into infinity, Michelle, mm-hmm. was an entire line of teachers in, into the mists of time. And they were all handing a bucket with water in it forward. Mm. And it hit me in a blinding flash of the obvious. Oh, I'm the bucket. Mm-hmm. I'm not the water. Mm-hmm. And then I opened my mouth and I haven't shut it since (laughs) because I realized it was not me. Mm -hmm. It wasn't my ego. There was something else and that I was, and I believe this is important for yoga teachers to name and to say and to acknowledge that when we teach, the teaching comes through us, not from us. And we all have that feeling, you know that kind of tingling or where you say something in class and you're like, somebody write that down. Mm. I never heard that in my thinking brain. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I do. It reminds me of something I've heard one of my teachers Indu Aurora say, and it's the phrase idam namama. And it means it is not mine. Right. And so this is what we can remember when we go to teach And we also have that feeling when it happens, right? That this is a transmission through. Yeah. And so our work is to prepare the vessel. And that's why we need to get on the mat. And we need to do a breath awareness practice. And we need to do our being present practice as much as we can in the day. And here is a technique that I'd like to offer. It's very simple that helps me because at this point in my life, I'm 75 and a half. I want to be the conduit of it into the world, not just on my mat, but unless, unless I can live what I learn about reality and and myself, the universe on the mat, if I can't live that, it's really not powerful. It's like, what are they going to put on my tombstone? We miss her so much. Her hamstrings were so loose. Like, it's like, where are we putting hollow? It's hollow. Yeah. And so, I want to bring it into the world and I want to live that presence even now as I'm speaking to you. So here's this technique that I found helpful. So sit again in front of your sitting bones. Now, imagine the actual geographical, the locational, if there is such a word, center of your brain. So from the sides, from the top, from the bottom, from the front, from the back, all these lines come together at the very center of your brain. Just take your attention to the center of your brain. Now, completely release the root of your tongue and let the tongue lie flat in your mouth. Stay in the center of your brain and just let the eyes come open a little bit. So, How was that for you? Very relaxing. And you feel present? Yeah, totally here. So here's here's the idea. There's all kinds of reasons that going to the center of your brain works neurologically. But I think what's so interesting is, I mean, I'm sure other people have discovered this long before me, but the tongue, the tongue is so important because... It's an organ, not just of digestion and taste, but and a muscle, but it's also the organ of speech. And so when 
is very, very connected to the thinking centers, the speaking centers, except for people who are in Washington, D.C. <laughs> right. It's not connected. <laughs> but the tongue is connected to writing, speaking, reading, thinking. And you see little kids learning to write, and they've got their tongue outside their mouth, and they're writing with their tongue as they're thinking the word and writing the word. So when, when for me, and I can only experiment on the quote-unquote lovingly stated lab rats of my students, because <laughs> that's what we do. We bring our practice and we experiment on other <laughs> other people. Does this work for you? No. Okay, that's interesting. It worked for me. So I'm saying that lightheartedly, but in, in, in really that's what we're doing. When you when you study with someone, you're doing their practice. So just that conscious suggestion to release the tongue disconnects us from thinking into being. And you don't need expensive yoga pants or a fancy yoga mat. You don't need silence. You don't need props. You don't need anybody else. You don't need music. You don't need a beautiful fountain in the back wall of your yoga studio and all these wonderful things that we have. You just need to be in the center of your brain and release the root of your tongue. I can't wait to try it more often. Just try it all day long. Try to yeah. try to do it when you walk across the room, mm -hmm. when you make the bed. Great. I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah. So let's keep going on some of the things that you've brought to the world because you, you've brought so much to the world of yoga. And for many years, I've revered you as the queen of restorative yoga, being familiar with your work and with students who have trained with you. I want to hear from you why is a restorative practice so important, especially now? Because we are our truest self, our highest self, when we are still and silent. And our society does not honor resting. I remember a number of years ago, I, I was listening to NPR, National Public Radio, and there was a researcher, maybe a professor or teacher from Stanford, who had written a book about how to get more things done. It was a more, much more elegant title, but how to get a lot more things done on less sleep and how to be more efficient. And of course, I'm talking back to the radio that this were in the days of radio before we told Alexa, do whatever. <laughs> because nowhere in his talk, if, you, if you're feeling exhausted, this is how you can work anyway. He never said, take a 20 minute rest, and then mm. you'll be much more creative and present and happy and effective. It's just not honored no. in our culture. And it was, I really want you and all our listeners to hear this with your heart, with a soft heart. COVID was a terrible time. And if I had my magic wand and I could choose to use that wand, if I, 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 I keep looking for that magic wand. I'm waiting to find it and I haven't found it in 75 years, but I know it's out there. If I had this magic wand, I would have gotten rid of COVID. And this is maybe a radical statement. There is nothing in the world that doesn't have an upside and a downside. World War II, you would see as a horrible thing. And if I had my magic wand, I wouldn't, I would wipe out World War II. But if there wasn't World War II, I would not be talking to you because my father was from Minnesota. My mother was from Texas and they met because of World War II. Mm. You know, in other words, so COVID was a horrible thing and I'm not making light of it, still is. 
But one of the things that we could choose to look at as positive, first, we should be incredibly thankful that we had a yoga practice to help us get through that. I know you know what I mean. Like, I do. All right. And the other thing was that we were, as a world, as a culture, as a human race, impermanence was just thrown in our face. Kali was, she was dancing right in front of our face and we could not turn with her out being in our visual field. And as my, one of my sons said, mom, hashtag everything is canceled. So Mm -hmm. you cling to plans, you cling to the future. You, you're used to getting what you want when you want it. And bam, all of that is gone. And so that, that had, I believe a great potential to show us that nothing is more true than impermanence, that there is no past, it does not exist. There is no future, as I heard someone say, if there was, somebody would have found it. There is only this moment. And when we are present, then we are connected with life because life only exists in this moment. And I think that this was one of the, and excuse me, please, if I offend you, it's not my intention, blessings. Mm -hmm. We could say such a thing. One of the teachings that was so in our face. So we have this potential transformational global experience. And when we teach others and when we practice ourselves, which we cannot really teach without practicing, because our best teaching comes from our own experience. When we teach other people how to lie down, use some props so they're super comfortable and they can let go into the present moment, this is beyond a blessing and an honor to do. Because when we allow people to be supported in a restorative pose, especially Shavasana, and to stay there for at least 20 minutes, so that their nervous system shifts and the tension drains from their body. Tension is the past in your body, especially in that moment when you're lying in a safe room, covered up with a warm blanket, you're physically comfortable, no one's shooting at you, there's nothing to do, no one to help, no task to perform, nothing. You can let go. And that letting go of the past is the same thing as letting go of tension. And then when people come out of Shavasana, you see their true face. And they are then in a state of samtosha, which is contentment. And Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, if if we are students of that great book, or many sutras on yoga, is he tells us it is a niyama. It's the second stage of our eight limbs. He says, these are things you are to practice. Patanjali doesn't say be content. Mm. He says practice contentment. Mm. And when people come out of a deep shavasana, almost without exception, they are in that state of contentment. They sit up. They don't need to move. They don't need to talk. They're just happy to be in the present. And so what I usually do in my classes and done for quite a long time is I ask people not to talk until they're out of the room. And people tell me that that they love that because they sometimes don't say anything to anyone and they just go home and they they carry it further into the world. 
What a nice idea. I actually have done that from time to time in my past and have gotten away from it as a teacher. And I'm not even sure why, but it is so lovely when that is, when that is offered and the space is given for that because it just does really extend the experience, like you say. Well, I think it doesn't extend the, I would, I would say it this way. I'm, I'm in 99.9% resonances that it doesn't extend the space. It creates the space for the mm. presence to be extended. I gotcha. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. So I'm going to shift gears just a little bit, although this is kind of a continuation of the subject too. But when we spoke a little while back, when I approached you to be on this podcast and I shared with you just a little bit about who I was and, and the listenership and the yoga therapy work that we do. Your response to me was that yoga itself is therapeutic on the spiritual, physical, and emotional level. So I would love for you to share with me more about that. All right. That's a big question. That, that sounds like a book to me. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but what, what popped into your mind, do you think, when you said that? Because it was so immediate for you. You know, yoga therapy, is it really a separate thing? We know it as a profession, but there's also the inherent nature of yoga. All right. To me is obvious. I don't know if you've raised teenagers, but I remember when my teenagers, I had three of them, they're all grown and married and have their own kids. So I'm getting my sweet revenge watching them deal with raising children is that they would say to me, mom, you know, that tone, mom, it's obvious. Like, <laughs> And she'd say, okay, mom, my daughter would say, okay, come, please come pick me up after the play practice and don't be weird. And I'd say, okay, I can pick you up and I'm happy not to be weird. What, what, what does that mean? She'd say, mom, it's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I know the obvious word. So for me, it's obvious. So yoga asks the question, and I mean big yoga now, I'm not talking about asana, I'm talking about the big, all of it. It asks the question, how much do you want to suffer? And so people take up the practice of yoga, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, in order to end their suffering. And suffering is a product of ego. So when we, we start with asana, most of us in, this, in the West, and what the asana does, we could talk about it physiologically and anatomically, how it helps you be aligned. And I, I'm a big believer in normal spinal curves. I'm not a tucker in Tadasana. I want to look at the body and say, what does the body structure tell me about, about standing in Tadasana? I'll give you an example. If you look at someone from the side standing in Tadasana, Michelle, where does the lower leg come into the foot at the back. Right. You have the tibia, which is a large bone. Then you have the talus, which is the only bone in the body that has no muscles attached to it. So you can't move it. You only passively move it. And then the big calcaneus. And then in front of that are the metatarsals and then the long slender bones of propulsion and balance, right? Yep. So is this beginning to bring awareness to the physical form? So for me, the teaching is of putting the weight on all four corners. That's not what the body is telling me. The body is telling me by its structure, its architecture, to put two thirds of the weight on the back third of the foot. And when you do that, your tibias are vertical. 
In order to put the weight on all four corners, you have to shift your weight forward, which Mm -hmm. changes everything above it if you've ever played Jenga. So teaching asana is a way of create bringing awareness. And when you practice asana, it's a way of bringing awareness and focus. When we stretch, when we practice, it takes us out of thought into sensation. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge jump. So... I was teaching a class many years ago in some place far away from California. And it was a whole gym full of people. And there was this young woman sitting near the front. And somehow I knew or she had told us or something that this was the first yoga she'd ever done. I mean, she was there to take a weekend workshop. She'd never done a single class. And first of all, I said, you're you're pretty brave. So good for you. And she did that dance that tends to be more peculiar to women. I don't mean to be sexist, but it tends to be so, that women often apologize when they ask a question in a group. Like, you know, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but a lot of women are more likely to say, oh, I'm really sorry to bother you. This is a stupid Mm. question. I really shouldn't be answered. You know, you know what I mean? I do. Okay. So she said, I have a question. I said, of course. And because I love questions. She said, what is the difference between thought and consciousness? And I started laughing. I said, do you realize that that is the entire concept of what yoga is about? You can leave. You got it. You're done. It's all seriously. And so when we move from thought to sensation, let's do it right now. Close your eyes and feel the sensation associated with breathing. Don't change breathing. Feel the sensations in your body of the moment. You're no longer in thought when you do that and you're spacious and suddenly you feel like I feel the cool air on my skin, which I wasn't feeling. I'm aware of a little bit of sound outside my house. I'm aware of the spaciousness in the room behind me. Are you with me? Yeah. All right. So sensation only lives in the present. You can remember that you stubbed your toe yesterday and it hurt, but you can't recreate the pain. This is why women have more than one baby. (laughs) Actually, you have biochemicals in your body that help you forget labor. But boy, when it starts a second time, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this. But sensation lives in the present. And so the asana is all about sensation. And that's beginning to take us, to point us inward. Then we take the breathing, and that's even a more refined way to be inside because we have to go inside first. Thought is an epiphenomenon. It's an external event of external to conscious. It's an Mm -hmm. external part of conscious. It's a surface. It's way away. And so we learn to sit in silence or to practice shavasana, something that I like to call rest on the golden couch of Vishnu. We just rest in the form and in the moment and in the sensation. Gone is tension. Gone is fear. Gone is anxiety about the future. Gone is ruminating about the past. You've treated your body with attention and awareness and alignment and love. And all of these things are healing on a very deep level because the only sane people in the world are mystics 
because the rest of us live either in the past or in the future. Neither one of them exists. So we're the ones that are not living in reality. And the mystic who's feeling God, singing God, singing presence, whatever you call it, I don't care. There's many names for it, is living, living it. Their being is merged with the true spaciousness of presence. And that's reality. And the irony is when we are in that space, that is the space you're in when you get a sudden insight. That's where my poems come from. They come from that place. I think better when I'm present. So now, have I answered the question? Yeah, I mean, what what it points to is that yoga is inherently therapeutic because it brings us into the moment, the present moment, and that's the only moment where wholeness healing is. Yes, and yoga is a state of being. Yoga Chitta Vritti Naroda Hat, second verse of Patanjali. Yoga is a state in which mind is not agitated because mind is an epiphenomena and we know and it's not we don't want to not have a mind. I like my mind. I have four college degrees. I love learning things, but it's not who I am. So yoga is a state of being and the practices associated with that state. The end and the means, right? Yeah. It's that the practices prepare the ground. As I said before, all our practices, the main ones most people have, asana, pranayama, meditation, and there are others, but chanting and all of it, they point toward the potential of presence. They themselves are not the yoga. So that was a beautiful answer to the question. And I've got one more question, if you have more time. Yes, of course. So this, I think, makes it a bit practical too and and what we can leave our listeners with and also sharing about how you make it practical for you. So just recently, I, I got one of your emails about a workshop that you were offering on how and why our practices can become just a habit. And you went on to say that students would learn how to create a daily practice without letting it morph into just another task to complete in the day. And I, I really loved that, that you said that and that you were offering that. We use that very similar approach with our students, right? We want them to live their practice and then that's how they're going to be able to share it with others and, and, and ask others to do the same. So I would love for you to tell us what your daily practice or practices look like. All right. I'm going to sort of do what you asked me to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Okay. And then I'll tell you the the specific more about what I do, but all right. So that course is a two, it was a two part course I did through yoga campus in London. We have an online course is that I know for me, sometimes I go into my yoga room and I just find myself going through the motions. And I mean, well, I'm doing shoulder stand. Okay. But what's for dinner? I'm going through the motions and one of the things I ask the students to do as homework in that in that course is just go into your yoga space, wherever that is, a corner of the bedroom, a guest room. A, if you, I didn't have a yoga room for many years because I had too many kids, so now I have my own yoga room. I just, every day what I do, the only habit thing that I do is I go and I lie over a bolster and then I listen to my body. Sometimes I just lie on the floor. 
So I stand up, I step onto my mat ritually, and I do a namaste. All those teachers, starting with my first teacher, and then going to BKS Iyengar and going back in time, the thousands of people that lived and taught and handed this treasure of yoga forward to us. Like when I step on the mat, I also step on the mat with you, Michelle. I I step on the mat with everybody in the world who's practicing at the moment. I know there are people I know all over the world. I've taught on six continents that are practicing with me in the invisible sangha. And you might be on your mat at that moment. So I give honor to the invisible sangha and I step on the mat. And then, then I either lie down flat or I lie over a bolster and I cultivate listening to what my body feels like doing. And when I'm lying there and I'm waiting and for two or three minutes, I'm waiting, standing and waiting and watching and being softly present. My body might say, I'm exhausted. That takes me somewhere. I'm too tired. I'm really energized. And I, and I think we have to be careful because we can mistake agitation and energy. Often when we say, oh, I'm so energetic. No, we're just agitated. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I might just do some standing pose, sun salutations, big movements that use my whole body that sweep me into the practice. But I find that it's much more about listening than it is about telling. I do tend to do supported backbends and supported inversions a lot because they feel so good to me. They're so internalizing. But whatever it is I do, I want it to help me open up and let go because that's the heart of being present. I let myself be gently led a bit. You totally answered the question. (laughs) Yeah. Boy, it's been such an honor and a pleasure to speak with you today, Judith. Um, I feel really privileged and fortunate to have had the opportunity. I look forward to sharing this out and also putting in a little plug for your your most recent book, Teaching Yoga with Intention. Do you want to say a couple things about that book before we close? Yes, I would. Most of the books that I've written, I have written extensive outlines for, like especially my anatomy book, there was 31 pages single typed of an outline. Because when you're writing a book like that, you can't remember when you're on page 97, what you wrote on page 31. You know, it was three months ago. But that book came to me, I wrote down 27 sentences on a piece of paper. And I wrote that book in seven weeks, something like that, just poured out of me. It has to do, teaching yoga with intention, has to do with the way we language and the way we touch and when to touch, when not to touch, why to touch and all of that. And then some pictures with some technique. And then there's a section on becoming an educated student. I think we need to remember we're all students of yoga and what is it like to be an educated student, not just a consumer of yoga. So anyway, I loved writing that book, but I also want to tell everyone if they want to find me, they can just go to judith.yoga, J-U-D-I-T-H dot yoga. There is a dot yoga. That's where they can find me in my courses and my books and my... Wonderful. And I'll share that in the show notes too. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks again, Judith. I look forward to the time we can be in person together. Thank you. Michelle, let me just say one more thing in closing, and then I'd like to ring the bell. Yes. 
I want to appreciate you and I want you to hear with a soft heart how much I support you as a fellow yogini in your practice and your teaching and that I really want you to know and feel that you are contributing to a shift in consciousness for the world in every day in what you do. And don't get disheartened. Thank you so much for offering this opportunity that we had to be together and to share with other people this yoga that we love so well. Namaste. May we live like the lotus at home in the muddy water. Thank you so much. Namaste and thank you too. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, visit us at innerpeaceyogatherapy.com.